For the rest of us, if you're not already there, uh, turn with me in the book of Job, chapter 42. Uh, Job is a somewhat easy book to find in your Bible, even if you're somewhat unfamiliar with it. Uh, Just kind of guess where the middle of it is, and you may be like me and just turn right to Job, or you may turn to the book of Psalms or Proverbs, if it's that case, flip your pages to the left and you will find the book of Job. We are in Job chapter 42 in verses 7 through 17 this week. And so here we are. We are at the conclusion of the book of Job. What a three months it has been, hasn't it? Um, When I uh, was candidating here to be a pastor in the spring of last year, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Michael, um, and I'm somewhat new here. This is uh, my first year here as a pastor of Faith Community Bible Church. And um, when I was candidating here, I was talking with Pastor Pat, and he mentioned that Josh was going on a sabbatical, and um, I was asking what plans were and, and how things were going to happen um, when he was on that sabbatical. And Pat said, yeah, I'm going to be um, leading the, the sermons. Um, and I'm thinking of doing a sermon series on the book of Job. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, November... December, January. Okay, so we're going to be going through the book of Job during Thanksgiving and Advent. That's going to be really interesting. (laughs) And hasn't it been? Um, Just incredible, these 42 chapters, as we wrestle with so much that we see, like Job does, and like God calls Job to, um, God, his sovereignty, the mystery of the problem of pain and evil, mankind, who are we and what our place is in the midst of it all. And this week we get to conclude. It's sort of bittersweet, isn't it? Uh, You almost want to stay here in this book, but at the same time, it's time to move on. And there's a season for everything. And coming up we have the Gospel of John um, with Pastor Josh back, and we're, we're so excited to dig into that. And so right now we're going to go to the book of Job, chapter 42, if you're not already there, and we're going to read it together, verses 7 through 17. After the word, or after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave a piece of money and a gold ring. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep 
6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Kurenhopuk, and in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you for your word this morning that we get to open it up and that we get to wrestle with you this morning. We get to see your sovereignty in all of these things and we get to see the ending of the book of Job and we get to see the ending of Job's life. Oh, Lord, please just soften our hearts to your words, to who you are. And we thank you for Job, uh, a person that points us to Christ as we talked about this morning, as we read in Isaiah 53, that we need an intercessor and Job's friends here needed an intercessor. And thank you that you sent Job to them and Christ to us. Lord, may these words change us. May you mold us and shape us to who you want us to be. And Lord, may we live in accordance with that. And we pray all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So these words that I just read come right after Job's powerful repentance that we heard last week from Pastor Pat in his sermon. And we see that God turns from Job and now turns three friends to address them, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And notice God's words to them. My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now that doesn't sound good, does it? My anger burns against you. I don't know about you, but if God was to audibly speak to me this morning, these aren't the words that I would want to hear coming out of his mouth. God, the creator, the sustainer, God of the world, saying, my anger burns against you. As we saw in earlier chapters, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar oversimplified Job's suffering. And when they did so, they did not speak of God what is right. Instead, they spoke of God out of their ignorance, out of their arrogance, and out of their pride. They thought they knew God, they thought they knew his ways, but they were sadly mistaken. One scholar summed it up this way. By insisting that God could only work in the predictable ways of retribution, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar tried to protect God's reputation at the great cost of diminishing his immeasurable wisdom and sovereign control. They thought they were doing what was right, defending God, but they did it at the cost of diminishing his immeasurable wisdom and sovereign control because they didn't understand his ways. And so here we see that God has heard their words and it's now time for Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar to face their reckoning. And God in his grace takes Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar from their place of pride and he humbles them. 
God humbles them, and then he exalts Job. And this truth that God humbles the proud and exalts Job, this truth that God humbles the proud and exalts those who are humble is found in the pages of Scripture, the Old and in the New Testament. Just listen to a few of these verses found in both the Old and New Testament that convey this truth. Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 3.34, towards the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And now in the New Testament, this same thing, Matthew 23.12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 1.52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And this verse here, James 4.6, has so struck me. Last summer when we were going through the book of James, this just was a punch to the gut for me. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we see those exact same words in 1 Peter 5.5, but this time they're applied to a command as well. 1 Peter 5.5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so let me ask you, faith family, After hearing those verses, and after seeing the beginning of Job, tell me, who would you rather be? Someone who is proud or someone who is humble? And here in chapter 42, we clearly see who is humble and who is proud. To Job in chapters 38 through 41, we saw Job respond in humility towards God. He repented in the dust but we're yet to see the same from Job's friends. And so here, God wants to bring Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar down in the dust with Job. He wants to humble them, for them to repent of their sins and to seek forgiveness from him for their sins. And God makes a way from that for them. But isn't it ironic how God commands them to make atonement for their sins? These friends of Job who came to him and his suffering and took up a place of pride, beleaguered Job and condemned him of sins he even never committed, now must humbly come to Job, bring their sacrifices to him, and have him make sacrifices for them and pray for them before God. The one who they came and accused is now their intercessor. God flips the script on Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He humbles them, and he exalts Job. Can you imagine just being in their shoes right now, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? How humiliating this must have been. Their friend Job, who they were so convinced was in the wrong, he was a terrible sinner who needed repentance, is now their intercessor. 
And so they take the seven bulls and the seven rams prescribed by God, and they did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Praise God that his humbling of them led to their repentance and that God provided an intercessor for them to be made right. And it's so easy for us to point the finger at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but the truth is that we are just like them. God's anger burns against us because we have sinned against him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we need an intercessor. We need someone to stand in that gap between us and God. And what did we hear this morning in Isaiah 53, 5? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And this morning when we took communion and through it, we got to remember the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf in his body and with his blood so that we could be made righteous before God. And so let me ask you this morning, have you accepted that atonement that Christ has made on your behalf? Is that something that you have surrendered to, that you are trusting in? If not, I'd ask you to consider it. Ask the person who brought you. Ask the person sitting next to you or ask one of us as elders and we'd love to share with you how you can accept and trust in this atonement made by Christ. But coming back to Job now, we also see that God called Job to do a hard thing here. It is hard to stand up for, to intercede for those who have accused you to make sacrifices for his friends who accused him of sins he's never committed. Would Job obey God, and would he make intercession on the behalf of his three friends, or wouldn't he? Job kind of has a choice here, doesn't he? And let me phrase this question slightly different for us. Would Job intercede for those who persecuted him? That same language is used by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount when he says these words, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so let me ask you, faith family, do you take this command of Christ seriously? Is this something that we put into practice daily in our lives? That when we stand before God and when we give an account for our lives one day, Will we be able to say to God, God, I interceded for my enemies. I prayed for those who persecuted me. I shared the gospel with them. I loved them as you loved them. I hope we'd all consider it, because one day we're going to have to answer God for that question. It's a really hard thing to do, though. Those who oppose us. We're supposed to love them and pray for them. I mean, this goes against all of human reasoning. 
And it's so easy for us in our, our times of prayer to just bring to God the things that we want, that we desire, and not even consider others, especially those who are our enemies. But when we look at Christ, we see not just great teaching, but we see this put into practice in his life. When Christ was hanging on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This was directed at those who were crucifying him. Later on in the New Testament, in Acts 7, as Stephen is being stoned to death, what's his final words out of his mouth? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And we also see this in the story of Pastor Soon Yang Un. Pastor Soon was a pastor in a leper colony in Korea in 1948. And his two sons, Tong In and Tong Sin, were away at another city in boarding school. When one day a communist uprising took place in their city, Tong In and Tong Sin, being prominent students and bold Christians, were urged to flee by their classmates, but they refused. Instead, this is what they did. On the morning of September 21st, 1948, they woke up early, they prayed together. They bathed, they put on their nicest clothes, and they waited. And not long after, a mob of communist students came in, dragged them away, and beat them. And during this time, Tong In and Tong Sin were pleading with their captors, but not for them to stop, and not for their release. Instead, they were pleading with their captors that they would surrender their lives to Jesus. And now when their captors realized that they would not deny their faith. The leader of this student mob, An, pulled out a revolver and executed both brothers. And then two days later, this local communist uprising was put down, and An, the boy's killer, was arrested. And Pastor Soon, upon hearing of his arrest, well, I'll just stop there. If you were Pastor Soon, your two sons were just executed. The killer is apprehended. What would you do? I can't imagine. I have a, a one-year-old son. I have, I have no idea what I would have done. Maybe I, I would have prayed for them that God would have shown mercy for their souls. Pastor soon took it a step farther. He didn't just pray for his son's killer on and ask God for ha to have mercy on his soul. Pastor soon interceded for him. He sent message to the local judge and asked that he be released, going so far as to promise that he would adopt on if the judge was to release him. And the judge, being so taken back and so impressed by Pastor Soon's request and intercession, agreed. And Pastor Soon adopted on the killer of his two sons. And not long after, Pastor Soon led on to Christ. If Jesus could intercede for those crucifying him, if Stephen could intercede for those who were stoning him to death, and if Pastor Soon could intercede and adopt the killer of his two sons, what excuse do you and I have? 
I mean, really, what excuse do we have not to intercede for our enemies? And if you need just one more nudge, if we, the redeemed of God, will not pray for our enemies, then who will? If we will not intercede for our enemies, if we will not lift them up to God in prayer, if we will not pray for their hearts to be softened, for them to come to know God, intercede for them physically, show them the love of Christ, share the gospel with them, if not us, then who? And we aren't just called to do this hard thing and intercede for our enemies, but we're also called to intercede for the world and for one another. Just listen to these passages and hear the call for intercession in them. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. We are called to pray for the people in this world. And yes, that includes government officials. And yes, that even includes government officials that we do not like. When's the last time you lifted up a government official who you didn't like, who you maybe strongly agreed with in prayer? Matthew 9, 37-38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so we are called as Christians to pray for the world, that the gospel might be spread the ends of the earth. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so here we are called to pray for one another that we may boldly share the gospel with others. And lastly, James 5, 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so we are called to pray for those who are sick. We have done so much in this last year. And we are called to pray for the forgiveness of sins in the body. God calls us to intercede for others, our enemies, for the world, and for one another. But coming back to Job now, we see that Job did as the Lord commanded him. And even though his friends took up the place of an accuser against him, Job intercedes for them, takes the sacrifices, makes atonement for them on their behalf, and prays to God for them. And God hears his prayers and accepts them. We should all want to have friends like Job. 
And we should all want to be friends like Job. Forgiving one another, interceding for one another, simply because we love God so much and we love one another so much that it flows out of us. And we often think, I I want to bring it back here to, to Job and his situation. You know, we think in our world today that those who God calls to serve him are those who are the most put together. Those who are the best speakers. Those who have the most influence, maybe have the best degrees, maybe have the nicest appearance, have the most money, whatever words you want to put in there. But time and time and time again in Scripture, we see that God doesn't value those things. Instead, what does God value? He values the heart. He values humility. And so here is Job. And if you're looking at this group of guys, Job is likely the last person that you would expect to be an intercessor. Job is covered in dirt, boils, probably stinks. He's in tattered clothes. And here he is making intercession to God on behalf of his friends. God can use anyone, anyone who is willing to humble themselves before him. Faith family, we need to see that God desires to use each of us exactly where we are at. And I know I've heard it before. I just don't think God can use me for and insert whatever excuse, reasoning we want to put in there. But just look at Job here. No possessions, no money, poor health. His status is tarnished in the world's eyes. He has broken relationships, tattered clothes, stinky, dirty, and covered in dust and ashes. And yet this is the exact person that God has called and sent to intercede for his friends Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. If God can use Job here, God can and will use each of us wherever we are at. And now moving on in Job, verse 10, it says this, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. We here at FCBC, we use an ESV Bible for preaching. If uh, you use one of the Bibles, um, and the chair in front of you this morning is an English Standard Version. Um, But I actually like the King James wording of this verse. You know, when I study scripture, oftentimes I use different translations, different versions of the Bible, and sometimes things jump out or Maybe they convey one way different than another. And this is what the King James reads. It reads this way. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. He turned the captivity of Job. That which was taken from Job, God restored. The captivity that Job was under was reversed, and God had lifted it. Here Job is restored. His sickness is gone. His wealth His prosperity comes back. But isn't it interesting, the point in this story in which God restores Job, the point in his life where God decides to turn his captivity, where is it? Is it after Job repents in verse 7? No. It's here in verse 10 after he made intercession for his friends. Why would God wait until after Job made intercession on behalf of his friends in order to restore him? Was God's grace towards Job in response to his works? Was it dependent upon Job interceding? 
would God not have blessed him? No. Job's restoration was not dependent upon his work, but it was the pure grace of God. Just like how Job's suffering was not, not brought about by his sin, neither was Job's restoration brought about by his repentance. Maybe, and it's not stated, so take this with a grain of salt and test it with scripture, but maybe God wanted to show Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that he is sovereign and that they are not. Earlier in chapter 8, this is the reasoning of Bildad. Bildad actually says that if Job were to repent, then after that repentance, God would restore him. And so listen to Bildad's words. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. So maybe, just maybe, by not restoring Job right after his repentance, God is showing Job's friends their miscalculation, their poor theology, that God does not operate according to man's actions, but God works in his own ways and in his own timing, that God is sovereign and man is not. And we also see that genuine repentance is a sign, or forgiveness is a sign of genuine repentance towards others. Job's intercession on behalf of his friends proves the genuineness of his repentance. One of the marks of a Christian, one of the marks of someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ is that we forgive others. Colossians 3, 12 through 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. God forgives us, so we must forgive one another. And so here Job repented before God, God forgave him, and Job forgave his friends. And then from here until the end of the book, we see just how God demonstrates to the world that it was not Job's fault that he was suffering. Here is where God vindicates Job in the eyes of the world. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and he ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort for the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hopuk. And in all the land there are no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Here we see a complete restoration of Job's life. Everything that Job had lost in his sufferings is now restored to him. And first we see it with Job's relationships, that they are restored. In the midst of his suffering, at one point, Job cried this out. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. 
My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house, my maidservants, count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. And here in verse 11, all of those who have distanced themselves from Job are now brought near. They have returned to him. The brokenness between them has been restored. And when they came, they did so to show him sympathy and comfort. Now, if you remember, this was the exact reason why Job's three friends came to Job in the first place, all the way back in chapter 2, and you don't need to flip there. This is what it says of Job's friends. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And now the sympathy and comfort that Job needed all along is finally given to him, and it's given to him by those who had previously abandoned him and those who had previously accused him of wrongdoing. Because Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are likely a part of this group. It says it's not just his family, but all of those who knew him before. Isn't it also interesting the timing of Job's sympathy and comfort that he receives? It takes place after God has already restored all things back to Job. Job already has all his possessions back, double what they were before. But he still needs that sympathy and comfort from his suffering. Take this as a lesson from Job. The stuff of this world does not comfort your heart. It's not like Job was looking around and like, oh man, look at all these animals. Double what I had before, a thousand female donkeys. This is amazing. I completely forget everything that fell upon me before. Now, Job still needed the sympathy and comfort found in relationships. In his relationship with God, and in his relationship with his family, his friends, and his neighbors. And then we see in detail how God doubled Job's possessions. First, we see that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And before Job's sufferings began, because, all his, because of all of his possessions that he had, he was known as the greatest of all the people of the East in the world's eyes. And now, with all of those possessions back, his sheep, his camels, his oxen, his female donkeys, and they're back, and they're all doubled this time, surely his status in the world has returned as well. And Job is once again, in the world's eyes, the greatest of all the people of the East. And then the book of Job ends, numbering his years, 140, and saying that before he died, he became a great, great grandfather. And Job died, an old man, and full of days. This is a far cry from where we saw Job in chapter 3, when he, after initially experiencing all of this pain and suffering, lamented the very day of his birth and wished he was never born. And this is how the book of Job concludes. And Job died, an old man, and full of days. This is such a fascinating ending for the book of Job, is it not? God brings the life of Job full circle and for everyone to see. And it almost kind of reads like a fairy tale, doesn't it? I mean, you can almost hear the words. They're not there, but you can almost hear them. And they lived happily ever after. And it's fascinating because this ending seems to contradict the whole rest of the book. I mean, what's the book of Job all about? It's a testimony to the sovereignty of God and the mystery of his ways. 
We witness Job through these 42 chapters and the pain and the suffering and his confusion that he learned and Job's friends also learned and we also learned along with them that the righteous don't always prosper and the wicked don't always suffer. And then the book of Job concludes and how does it end? With the most righteous man on earth having the most possessions on earth. So now not only do we wrestle with the fact that Job suffers as a righteous man, but now, in light of everything that we learned, we also wrestle with the fact that Job is now blessed almost more than any other man. And did anybody else notice that the book of Job is a giant pendulum swing? I mean, we start off here with with Job on one extreme, just immense blessings and prosperity, and then he goes to the complete opposite end with immense suffering and pain, And then it comes right back to the other extreme again, this time even double with immense blessings and prosperity. And the question that Job and his friends are throwing around for so much of this book is, who causes this? Who causes the pendulum to swing ultimately? And it's the same question that we ask in our world today. And if we're not careful, we can come to the same conclusion as Job's friends, who until the very end, believed that ultimately Job was the source of his suffering, that Job was ultimately the one that drove the pendulum of his life. They thought that Job swung from prosperity to suffering because he did something wrong. And so in their minds, it's a pretty easy way to get back to prosperity and suffering. Repentance. Of course, it has to be repentance. But as we saw, that wasn't why the pendulum swung from one side to the other. Job wasn't a sinner in those ways that caused suffering, and it's not because of his suffering that, or his sins that he was suffering. In other words, Job is not sovereign over his life. God is. God is the one who caused Job to be prosperous in the first place, and then to suffer greatly, and then to come back and to prosper again. God is sovereign over Job's life, and God's sovereign over our lives as well. One commentator summed up the book of Job this way. Job's experience billboards the truth that man's worship of God does not stem from a business-like contract, whereby he earns material rewards from God. Man's relationship to God is not a judicial arrangement in which he is obligated to reward man for every good act. Instead, man is to trust God. Worship him regardless of his circumstances and rely on the perfections of his character even when God's ways are not fully understood. Now, it's one thing to say that and write it, but it's another thing to live it out with our lives. There was a time in my life when I was questioning why. And a mentor shared this poem with me, and I'm going to share it with you now. It's in your bulletins if you have one. If not, the words will be up on the screen behind me. Ironically, we don't know the author of this poem, but maybe that's a good thing. And I think it just encapsulates the book of Job and so many of our lives as Christians as well. It's titled, When God Wants to Drill a Man. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. 
when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects, whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and by and which every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. If you were hoping to find an answer to the question of the problem of evil and suffering in the book of Job, I'm sorry to say, but there isn't one here. Instead, the book of Job calls us to go beyond this question, it leaves it as a mystery, and confronts each of us with a call. A call to trust in the sovereignty and the character of God. And while we may not understand his methods, his ways, or his timing, we can trust in God's sovereignty and his character. If the book of Job teaches you anything, let it be this. And this is our sermon series in a nutshell. God knows what he is doing. Or as a poem I just read put it, God knows what he's about. So now let me ask you, faith family, let me ask each of us here, will we trust him? Will we trust in God even when we don't know why? Let's pray. Lord, we do not know why. Why do you allow the righteous to suffer? Why do you allow the wicked to prosper? Why do we as your chosen people experience pain and suffering just like the rest of the world? Lord, may we remember Job here in our lives as we go out, as we live in this broken world, as we see this brokenness and this suffering and this pain in the world around us and we feel it ourselves. And Lord, may we trust in you. Lord, even though we don't know why, may we put our trust in you. And may we know that you know what you're doing, even when we don't. Lord, we pray that we go out from here a changed people, one that has seen you, the eyes of our heart have seen you, and we, uh, Lord, repent in dust and ashes. Lord, may we intercede for one another, may we intercede for this world, and Lord, may we even intercede for our enemies. And Lord, we look so forward to the day, through the blood of Christ, that we will see you face to face the suffering, the pain in this world that we experience, the mystery that is right before our eyes that we cannot comprehend may one day be illuminated to us as we see you face to face and experience no more pain and no more suffering and we live with you forevermore. Lord, bring that day near to us. May it be soon, we pray. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen.
If you're able, Faith Family, one last time, let's stand together.